1: Learn all about investing in real estate in Windsor, Colorado, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Windsor, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Windsor. Be
0: sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors.
1: All right. Good morning and welcome, everyone. I am James Orr and we have a really exciting webinar for this morning. So the title of the webinar is why you still might want to invest in real estate despite high prices and high interest rates and lagging rents. So I've been thinking about this a lot. One of the things we're seeing right now is that over the last few years, especially, real estate prices have gone up very rapidly. Um, But then in order to curb inflation, the Federal Reserve has decided to significantly raise interest rates. And so interest rates are way up on prices that were already very high. And rents are up, but they're lagging behind where the prices and the rents are. So, We've got this sort of triad of forces all going against us being able to buy new leveraged properties that would have cash flow. So it is harder than ever to have positive cash flow on rental properties. You know, over the last, well, I guess it's been a year or two, but over the the few years or so before I took my sabbatical and decided not to do much. Um, We had a period where interest rates were on a decline and I kept trying to tell people, look, everything is on sale. Even though prices are up, everything seems to be on sale because interest rates are down. That is not the case anymore. Now real estate prices are up and maybe they're softening or maybe they're even going down in your market. But- Interest rates have gone up so fast and rents are sort of lagging behind. In some cases, rents are sort of softening and, and that's going to cause a little bit of a drop there that it is harder than ever to have cash flow on property. So why might you still want to invest in real estate despite all these issues? And, and by the way, this is not a new phenomenon. You know, we've heard this song before, this idea that, you know, prices are too high, interest rates are too high, rents are too low, and it's hard to get positive cash flow. I'm a kind of a collector of old real estate investing books. And if you go read books from 80s, 90s, 2000s, it's all the same stuff. Can't your properties to cash flow. Here's the solution to get properties that will cash flow for you. And so I want to talk today about how to, how, to, how to kind of overcome some of these strategies and why you might want to still consider investing in real estate. And I've got some interesting new things. And I'm going to try to keep it relatively short because I probably could talk about this stuff all day. In fact, there's a couple of points in here where I mentioned, you know, I probably should do like a full class just on this one little topic. So we'll kind of get there. So cash flow as a goal. So many real estate investors are focused on cash flow because of how you think about what it means to be financially independent. If you think about the three inputs that determine whether or not you're financially independent or not, It's these three things. Number one, passive income from things like Social Security, pensions, if you happen to be lucky enough to have a pension, or if you buy an insurance product called an annuity, which is basically you pay a lump sum. Sometimes you pay it monthly over a period of time before you actually receive it. But in most cases, you pay a lump sum. And then in exchange for that lump sum, the insurance company will pay you out a certain dollar amount, usually per month, until you die. There's some exceptions and variations on that theme, but the idea is you give them $100,000 and they give you, I don't know, whatever it is, 3% per year. Um, So it's sort of like you're betting that you're going to outlive what you could have done yourself if you'd taken that same money and invested somewhere else by having the insurance company invest that. And so you give them hundred K and if you die early, then you know that's how they're able to pay out some people longer and some people shorter. So anyway, pa- number one, passive income from social security, pensions or annuities didn't mean to go off on a tangent on annuities. This was not intended to be an annuities class. Uh, number two, Net cash flow from rentals. And this is the one where I think a lot of real estate investors focus on cash flow. They're cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. I want to be able to be financially independent. And the way you do that is you have enough cash flow coming in for your rentals to be able to be financially independent. Yeah, that is one way to do it. The third way is a yearly safe withdrawal rate, a percentage of your assets you have invested somewhere else that you can safely pull out, usually from the return, although you can dip into principal in some cases on some type of invested assets, usually stocks, bonds, commodities. You know, not, people aren't talking about Bitcoin quite as much anymore, except for the lawsuits and stuff. So, um, but you know, that's an example of another invested asset. Uh, th- to be 100% clear, though, it's not yearly safe withdrawal rate on equity. The equity is what's generating your cash flow. And this is another kind of sub problem to what we're seeing in our current environment. You know, prices have gone up over the last few years. And anyone who's owned these rental properties, now we're in this really unique situation where we've got a bunch of equity in a rental property and a really good interest rate on our mortgage in a lot of cases, unless it's paid off. Um, and and so you're kind of stuck with this thing where you've got a ton of equity. And so your return on equity has gone down quite a bit. And you're like, well, I can't really, I, well, you can, but I think a lot of people are choosing not to do a cash out refinance or rate and term. We definitely not doing rate and term for you refinance very you refinance, already got a one, but cash out refinance on a property because you'd go from a I don't know, 3.5% interest rate to a 7% interest rate. And so it gets really ugly when you do that. But there may still be, oh man, I'm off on these tenses. It may still be a good reason to do that, which I'll have to do in another class. That's not today's class. Oh boy. So those are the three reasons why, those are the three uh, reasons uh, people become financially dependent. It's the, uh, the three sources passive income, social security, pensions, annuities, net cash flow and rentals, yearly safe withdrawal rate on invested assets. And so a lot of real estate investors are focused on cash flow because they're like, look, I don't got social security. Well, maybe you do at some point. I don't got a pension. I'm not doing annuity. So I'm really focused on this cash flow, this yearly safe withdrawal rate on invested assets. That doesn't make sense to me because I'm investing my money in real estate. So that's why they focus on cash flow. Although there are some ways to kind of get around that, which we'll discuss here very briefly. So, in other webinars, which is not today, we've talked about how to improve cash flow. And there's a lot of really good strategies that still apply today. Um, there, there's a class I did, I think it's called the uh, How to Improve Cash Flow Workshop. You can go watch that. It's good stuff. Go into a lot more detail on all the different ways to improve cash flow. It's based on the lowest monthly payment guarantee I had and the maximum cash flow guarantee, kind of combine those two into one class to show you how to improve cash flow. So, even if you could improve cash flow, which you can, um, it still may not be great. Because of just our environment. But, and this is the big but for this class cash flow isn't the only reason to invest in real estate. Two significant examples come to mind. Number one, you may want to build up an asset base, rental properties, something else, and then improve cash flow by converting to free and clear properties. So imagine for a minute, and I probably should do a whole class just on this topic, but imagine for a minute, you buy a rental property, you buy another rental property, buy another rental property, you eventually get to the point where you have 10 rental properties, and then you let them grow for a period of time, and then you sell off five of them, pay off the mortgages you have on them, take any of the proceeds you had from those five, and pay off the remaining five that you kept. Now you've got five free and clear rental properties that all cash flow a lot better. So you buy more than you need, you sell off some, and you pay off the others. And I've done a lot of modeling on this as a way to speed up your time to being financially independent. Turns out it's a lot faster. So even if you're not getting great cash flow on the properties now, but you've got some time, it may still make sense for you to buy the properties, then use the proceeds from selling them to pay off the other ones. Or another variation on this theme is you buy a bunch of rental properties, and because the overall return on the rental properties is usually greater than what you can get in stocks. And I'll show you an example of that today. Uh, I'll show you a bad example of that today to kind of sh- to kind of make my point. But then you could have all these rental properties. And then the, as they grow over time, you could then take all those, sell off all of them, not just part of them to sell to pay off the other ones, but sell off all of them, take that money and invest in something else like stocks, bonds, annuities, whatever you're going to do. And then you could use a yearly withdrawal, yearly safe withdrawal rate on those invested assets on the stocks then. So you kind of use your real estate as a kind of like booster rocket to get you where you want to go with a certain net worth. Then you use that net worth in order to live on a really safe return rate. So those are kind of like the two immediate exceptions of why cash flow isn't everything, right? So let's discuss building up assets and why specifically the first $100,000, acquiring the first $100,000 is the hardest And then we'll return to real estate for building up your asset base. And for those of you that stick around to the end, I got some brand new stuff that I did yesterday, which I will share with you, which is crazy. I think it's going to blow your mind. It has to do with free and clear rental properties, buying properties for all cash, which I think a lot of people are like, oh, that doesn't make sense. You know, it takes so long and everything else. Well, not so fast. (laughs) Not so fast on that one. Okay. All right. So here's a quote from Janet Lowe uh, from, I think it's a book, Damn Right. Behind the scenes with Berkshire Hathaway billionaire Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger, I think, is worth like 2.4 billion, something like that. Yeah, what you know, what's a what's a few hundred million here and there. You know, when you're talking about billions, right? So here's a quote about Charlie. He's a billionaire. He's uh, Warren Buffett's partner. Um, they do a lot of investing, bounce ideas off each other. Um, really fascinating dude. Super smart dude. Super smart dude. So this way, this is what Janet Lowess say about Warren Buffett uh, about Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger has said that accumulating the first 100,000 from a standing start with no seed money is the most difficult part of building wealth. Wow, a billionaire who is focused on investing for pretty much all his life says the first 100,000 is the most difficult. I'm continuing with the quote. Making the first million was the next big hurdle. So once you get to 100K, then your next goal is, hey, how do I get to this first million? Continue with the quote. To do that, a person must consistently underspend his income. Getting wealthy, he explains, is like rolling a snowball. It helps us start at the top of a long hill, start early, and try to roll that snowball for a very long time. So not practical advice. I mean, really good advice, but not practical in the sense that, how do you do it? So let's continue on. So here's an actual quote from Charlie about the same concept. He says, quote, the first 100,000 is a bitch but you gotta do it. I don't care what you have to do. If it means walking everywhere and not eating anything that wasn't purchased with a coupon, find a way to get your hands on $100,000. After that, you can ease off the gas a little bit. So again, not super practical yet, which we'll get to, but still super interesting. All right, so here is a chart showing how long it takes Save, to save up for your first hundred thousand dollars. And I've assumed a couple things to this. Now I'll, I'll go over my assumptions. I think it's important. The first thing is I assumed you're saving ten thousand dollars a year. And you know, to kind of use Charlie Munger's quote, got to do whatever you have to do in order to save up that first hundred K. And if it means scrimping and saving and you know eating ramen noodles or doing whatever you have to do, gotta do that. So I've assumed you're saving $10,000 per year and I've assumed you're saving, uh, you're getting 7% interest on your money. So you're investing in stocks or something like that and you're able to get 7%, which I don't think is like incredibly difficult over a long period of time. You know, in any given month, it's hard to hit that number, but over a long period of time, I think 7% seems really reasonable. I've also assumed that you don't save this monthly. Basically at the end of the year, you save up 10K and you invest that. So you'll notice there's no interest earned on the money in the first year. Basically you, you deposit 10K, and you have $10,000 at the end of year one. Then at the end of year two, you earn interest that's 7% on that first $10,000. And you invested another $10,000 at the end of year two. So at the end of year two, you have $20,700. $700 was interest on the first 10K, but you added another 10K. So 20,700 at the end of year two. And each year, <clears throat> excuse me, each year your money grows until eventually after 7.84 years, a long time, you get to $100,000. And you're thinking to yourself, Incorrectly, I might add, but you're thinking to yourself, seven point eight four years to get to a hundred thousand dollars. It's going to take me, you know, ten times that, seven point eight four times ten, almost eighty years to get to a million dollars. And I don't have eighty years. <laughs> a lot of you are thinking. And secondly, a million dollars is not what it used to be. And so I think I need more than a million dollars. And so you've got some challenges. You're like, you know. It's going to take me 80 years to do this. Well, maybe it won't take you 80 years. Let's take a look. Saving your first 200K. So in that last chart, we showed you the first 100K to get to this point took 7.84 years. But at this point, you've got $100,000 that you've got invested at 7%. And so part of the work is being handled by the money you already have invested. Sure, you got to keep adding the 10K. But the 10K is becoming less and less important over time the money you have invested becomes more important. And that applies to real estate too. Once you get a rental property and it's kind of performing on its own, that continues to grow and you have to do less work to make more and more progress, okay? So the second 100K happens in only 5.1 years. Whoa, I went from 7.84 years, almost eight years to about five years. That's a lot faster. It's 35% faster to save that second 200K. Well, that's interesting well if it only takes you know another whatever it is nine more times for this that's only 45 more years that's a lot faster it's becoming more interesting all right gonna jump ahead a little bit we're gonna go to 500k so the first hundred thousand dollars took a little less than eight years the second one took a little more than five years the third one takes a little bit less than four years 3.78 years the fourth hundred thousand four hundred thousand dollars total Takes just a tiny bit more than three years by itself to get that last 100K. And then finally, in order to get the last 100,000 underway to 500,000, it takes 2.5 years. So as you can see, it's getting faster and faster for each one. And you're not investing more each year. You're doing that same $10,000 each year that you do this. Okay. So when you get to your first million, After the first 500K, it's 2.14 years to get the next 100K, 1.87 to do the one from 600 to 700, 1.66 years to go from 700 to 800, a little more than a little less than a year and a half to do the 800 to 900. And that last $100,000, the 900,000 to a million only takes you about one and the third years, which is crazy. And if you think about it, it, that first $100,000, it took you 7.84 years to do it. But the last $400,000, 4 times as much, took you less time. It only took you 6.37 years to grow the last 400000 on your way to a million compared to a little bit less than eight years to do that first 100000 That's crazy, right? That's the challenge. So you got to do whatever you can in order to get to this first under K, and you know, I don't know if I cover this explicitly in here. If I don't, I'll cover it now here. So this is the thing: if you're going to get nothing else from this webinar, you need to buy an owner-occupant property to live in. Why? Because you could buy it with. USDA or VA if you're a veteran, nothing down low. And some other lenders have 0% down loan programs. Or there's 3% down conventional loan programs or 3.5% down FHA programs. But do whatever you can to save up enough money to buy just an owner-occupant property because a highly leveraged owner-occupant property can get you to this 100K. That's all you need to do. You should do more. But if you just did that thing, that it makes a huge difference in getting you there, okay? All right, so this is what I was talking about before. Saving up your first million, it takes you 25% of the total time it would have saved you to make a million just to earn that first $100,000. Almost 25.5% of your total time to get to a million dollars is the first 100000 It takes you about 74.5% of the time or about three-fourths of the time to earn the next 900000 if you think about it this way, it takes you 25.5% of time to first earn that first 100,000, 16.6% of time to earn the second 100,000, and then a little bit more than half the time, 57.9, in order to earn 800,000. So it gets crazy to think about how much effort goes into that first bunch, and then how much effort goes into this next one. And the same applies if you're, if you're like, okay, I'm already at 100,000, James, Here you're, you're kind of talking below my level. The same thing applies to millions. So it takes you 25.5% of the time to earn the first million. Although it's actually probably a little bit different than that. Still the same idea though. And then it takes you about 75% of the time to earn
0: the next 10 million. Okay.
1: All right. So this just breaks down the total amount of time. In this particular example, it took you 30.73 years If you put $10,000 away and you're only earning 7% per year in order to get a full million dollars, and it breaks down how much as a percentage of time it took to do each one. By the time you get to that last million, it's only 4.4% of your time to earn that last $100,000. Super interesting. Okay, so here's the difference. Remember before we talked about if you're saving $10,000 per year, that's these numbers. And this goes from $100,000 increments all the way up to a million. And so if you're saving $10,000 a year, it took you 30.7 years at 7% interest rate in order to generate that million dollars. However, if you save $15,000 a year, it takes you 25.6 years. If you're only able to serve, save $5,000 a year, it'll take you 40 years. If you're only able to save $200 a month, it'll take you 50.4 years. If you're only able to save $100 per month, um, it'll, it'll take you 60.3 years. So it shows you how over time this does this, okay? So you can kind of look at that chart if you want to. Take a screenshot if you want to. Okay. Now, the interest rate you earn on your way to this million dollars, earning $100,000, you know, that kind of thing, the interest rate you earn matters. So if you're only earning 1% on your money, not 7%, it takes you a lot longer to build up to that million dollars, which is right here, okay? Okay. If you earn 10%, it's shorter, but it's not significantly different. So that first 100K, it took you 7.84 years at 7%. If you earn 10%, it's only 7.27. And the reason why is most of the effort is from you putting in that money. It's not the money. Later on, the interest rate matters more because you have more money invested. And so the interest rate impacts a larger portion of the amount that's getting you there. Okay, So you look at that and you'll notice here that I only go to 12%, but leverage real estates probably not 7% per year. And it's probably higher than that 12%. Now, it could be less depending on which property you pick. It's not like this is automatic and a give me, but it's usually higher than 7% when you account for all the different areas of return when you buy real estate, not just cash flow. We're not talking about 7% cash on cash return. Now, we're not talking about getting 7% cash flow on the amount you had invested. We're talking about the overall return you get from the tendency for properties to increase over time from inflation, which we often call appreciation. Properties going up in value over a very long period of time, like any given month, like this next year, property values can decline. The next five years, property values can decline. But over a very long period of time, Typically, what happens to property values is they go up with inflation. It costs more to build the properties. It costs more in labor to build the properties. And so it tends to happen is property values overall as a whole tend to go up with inflation over time. Okay. Sometimes a little faster, sometimes a little slower. Sometimes they have uh, significant uptrends over like the last few years. Sometimes they have significant downtrends like we did in 2008, 2009, that kind of period. Okay. But overall, long period of time, properties tend to appreciate over time. So that's one area. Cash flow, which we talked about, which, you know, right now might actually even be negative. Depending on what market you're in, you might actually see negative cash flow. If you put down 5%, put down 20% in the property, the more you put down, the more likely you are to have positive cash flow on a property. If If you bought a property free and clear without a mortgage at all, you're very likely to have positive cash flow on that rental property. If you put down more, if you put down less, you're more and more likely to have negative cash flow. Plus the return you get from paying down the loan on the property, part of the monthly payment you make on a normal amortizing loan, 15-year loan, 30-year loan, 40-year loan, you know, any of those amortizing loans that pay themselves off over a certain period of time, like a 15-year loan pays itself off over 15 years, 30-year loan pays itself off over 30 years, but the, oh, I actually have a typo here I need to make correction.
0: It says department pay down instead of debt pay down. Make a note. Um, so debt
1: pay down, the return you get from paying down a loan, that little amount of money in the beginning that pays down how much you owe, the principal on the loan, that increases over time. And the amount you make from that is also a return. Plus, when you have a rental property, not properties that you own, you live in, but if you have a rental property, you get a tax benefit of depreciation. And man, I got to do some whole classes on depreciation because there's some this is a tool that becomes. Very important in a market like now, where we have these high prices, high interest rates, lagging rents, and we're looking for deal alchemy where we can kind of manipulate the return quadrants in order to get properties and have them overall cash flow less. So, I need to do a whole class on depreciation, bonus depreciation, accelerated depreciation, things of that nature. But anyway, I digress. (laughs) Oh, boy. Really? This idea of depreciation, it's tax benefits the government gives you for owning rental property. And you are required to take it. If you don't take it, they assume you did. And so there's no reason not to take it. Um, so you have this depreciation benefit for doing that. So the overall return from appreciation, the tendency for property values to increase over time, cash flow, you know, after all your expenses on a property, what you net, debt pay down, paying down the loan on the property, and then the tax benefits from depreciation, which I like to call cash flow from depreciation because it shows up either less taxes from your paycheck, or at the end of the year, you get a big chunk back. Okay, so it's cash flow from depreciation. So those areas of return on leveraged properties, it tends to be higher than 7%. So if it's higher than 7%, that could be advantageous for you. And this is especially true if you acquire an owner-occupant property, one that you live in, as a primary residence with little or nothing down. So you go buy a property with a USDA or VA loan, you get nothing down on that, or you put a 3% down on a conventional loan or 3.5% down on an FHA loan or 5% down on a conventional loan, and you're able to buy a property that is highly leveraged, the returns from appreciation, debt pay down, depreciation, if you convert it to a rental after a period of time, uh, those are all usually really, really good. The cash flow may be ugly because you got very little into the deal. And so you're looking at the overall return. And if you convert that property after living there for a year or two or whatever it is, and you convert that property to a rental property what we normally call the nomad real estate investing strategy. You buy a property with little or nothing down, you live there for at least a year and you convert to a rental. If you kind of do that strategy, that could be very effective. Even in today's market, even with really, really negative cash flow. Because you got to look at, you know, what's my alternative? I did a class once, it was called, uh, is Nomad Dead." We'd seen this big run up in prices and everyone thought, you know, there are no deals. You know, I I can't get the deals I was getting, you know, four years ago and, you know, how bad the real estate market was and everything. I was like, okay, let's do a whole class and see if Nomad is dead. And so I did a whole bunch of analysis and I'll give you the the 30 second version of this two hour class because there's a lot of detail in the class, but here's the 30 second version. You calculate out whatever the return it is that you can get on the property that's sitting right in front of you. You find the best deal that you can in the marketplace right now. What's the best I could do? And you look at the return that you would get on that particular property. And you say, okay, it's whatever it is, you know, 22%. Okay, it's 22% per year. What else can you invest in where you get 22%? That's the, that's the whole thing in the class. If you can go find something where you can get better than 22%, then go do that. If you can't, then real estate looks like a better option at this point. And that may change over time, right? You know, three years from now, maybe like, I think I'm just investing in whatever the new version of whatever the flavor of the week is the new Dogecoin or Bitcoin or whatever the new thing is that people are looking at NFTs. There's, I saw this article. There's a company that is now buying your now lower valued NFTs so that you can take the tax write-off so that you could do like losses on your taxes. Right. It's kind of a new industry has popped up. So anyway, I digress here. The point is this idea that you look at an investment and you see the return that you can get on it and you decide, is this for me? Yes or no. Right now it is, or right now it isn't. And you can go do that. And I'm going to give you the the little bonus at the end is if you're like distressed, if you're like all worked up, you're all anxious, you feel that tightness in your chest because you're thinking to yourself, you know, the the market, the interest rates are high. Prices are high. Rents are, you know, where they are. They're a little lagging behind. You know, this is where that all that is. And you're thinking to yourself, I've missed the boat. I got to get another property. I got to be all constantly leveraged and constantly up there. I'm going to show you at least one slide. I need to do probably a whole class on this, maybe several, but I'm going to show you that. Breathe, relax. Even if you have to save up your money for another year or two and wait, it's not the end of the world. Chill out. But if you're like, hey, look, there's an investment in front of me. It makes sense to me. I'm going to do it. That sounds good. And you still might want to do that because of what about trading? Okay. So this is a what I would consider a particularly bad property, right? It's. Uh, I'll jump right to the bad spot. It's negative $8,000 a year in cash flow. Now, you are buying it with 5% down. So you got very little money in the deal. But it's ugly. I mean, who wants to put out, you know, whatever it is, almost $700 a month in negative cash flow. But as an aside, if you were going to save $10,000 a year in order to get that first 100K and kind of build on that, you know, if saving that is really paying negative cash flow to kind of like invest over time in order to own this rental property, that's not the end of the world either. If you think about it this way, I'll kind of go off on a tangent on this. If you had put enough down, this thing would have positive cash flow, but you chose to put a little down and now you're choosing to take some money each month, and paying the negative cash flow, really, you're just paying the mortgage payment, you're not getting enough in to do it, so you have to supplement it, but you're paying that negative cash flow over time, it's sort of like you're able to make an investment in this rental property over time. You're investing a little bit of money each month in the form of negative cash flow as additional down payment that you didn't make elsewhere, right? I mean, is not that what you're doing? You could have put more down if you had had know, whatever this property is, I don't even know, $500,000, you could have put $500,000 down, it would have had positive cash flow from day one, could have put probably $250,000 down, you know, have 50% mortgage on the property, and it probably would have positive cash flow, you chose in this case, to put 5% down. And so you have negative cash flow. So instead of putting, you know, $250,000 down, you put down $25,000. And now you're saying I put that $25,000, and I'll pay in $8,000 per year in order to acquire this property that overall makes me, in this case, you know $4,286 net. So $8,000 from appreciation and change, you know, almost $3,000 in debt pay down, and about $1,200 in tax benefits. So overall, it brings in you know, almost $4,300. Okay, so that's the dollars now. So this property does that. Now, if we look at how much you invested and the return you got in that investment, the appreciation is a 50%, 5-0% return on your initial down payment. So from appreciation for the property value going up and from the property going up in value, you're getting a 5-0, 50% return on that. Your cash flow is negative, a lot, almost negative 50%. In fact, they almost all set, right? So the amount of money you're making for appreciation is offset by the amount of cash flow you're getting on this property. In this particular example, we're putting very little down on a property that I, I admit is a deliberate bad choice, right? And, and if you're in a market where this is what you can get, this is what you can get, right? And this is what you got to decide on. The debt pay down portion of the return is 17.7%. And what's interesting about the top half of this quadrant, the appreciation of the cash flow, is those are speculative, Right? We really don't know if next year the property is going to go up in value or if it's going to go down. We don't know if rents are going to improve, stay the same, or go down. So the top half is sort of a little speculative. We don't really know what's going to happen. We're speculating that the market is going to continue to do well. The bottom half of the returns, those are more certain. They're less speculative. The debt pay down portion is contractually guaranteed by you and the lender. When you get a loan, you sign an agreement with the lender. says, okay, you're going to make these regular payments for the next 30 years. And if you do that, this loan is going to be paid down by that amount. It's contractual. It's not speculative. It doesn't matter how the market does. Market could do good. Market could do bad. It doesn't matter. You're getting every turn. So debt pay down 17.7. And the tax benefits, unless they change tax law, which it's possible that they will, very unlikely, but possible, you're going to get 7.73%. So overall the return you're getting when you add up that really negative cash flow portion plus appreciation plus debt pay down plus tax benefits, you're getting 26.31% on what I admit is a horrible deal. <laughs> I don't want to say horrible because someone might actually buy this, right? I think this is the challenge. It is, it is a deal I picked that I picked because it was ugly. The cash flow on it was was not fun. So the question then becomes, can you go somewhere else? And get better than a twenty six point three one percent return, and if you can, great. Then maybe this is why it says like, I don't know what the title is. What? Why you might still want to invest in real estate? Well, you might want to still invest in real estate because you're getting a twenty six point three one percent return, even with ugly cash flow. If you can go somewhere else and get a better return with similar risk characteristics, because you got to kind of take that into account, right? You, you can't go do. Uh, you know, I'm going to go play roulette. I can get a, a, a 100% return on my money if I win every let. Yeah, maybe different risk characteristics, right? Ah, okay. So, anyway, if you can do better than 26.31, maybe you do something else. If this is the best you see, the best you've got available, then maybe you might want to still invest in real estate. Okay. So, that's sort of the crux. Now, this was that years to save your next 100K at 7% it took 7.84 years to get that first 100k at 25% which this is you know 26.31 so at 25% it's 5.61 so it's a lot faster i didn't sum it up i probably should sum it up in the future but th- it just goes to show like in, in by the time you get to that last 100k to get to a million it's only 0.41 years at that rate versus this i don't know 1.24 and honestly this is the problem we're seeing with other people right now in our marketplace. They've been building up their equity, right? The property values have been going up. They've been paying down their loan. They got really nice low interest rates, which the loan pays down a little faster when you do that. Um, your return on, your, your debt pay down return is a little higher early on. Um, so you're, you're, you're actually building up equity really fast. And so your return on the amount you have invested in the deal actually goes down. So the overall return we see as we own rental properties longer and longer and longer actually goes down Till so eventually when you pay off the property and you get rid of your depreciation benefit, eventually it approaches cap rate plus your unleveraged appreciation rate. You know, if your property's going up 3% a year, which is what I use for the appreciation rate assumption, by the way. Some people are like, James, you get 50% return from appreciation. James says that he's getting 50% appreciation. No, I didn't say I'm getting 50% appreciation. I'm getting 3% appreciation, which seems very reasonable over a long period of time, especially considering the last few years. But 3% over a long period of time, it turns out the return from getting three percent appreciation is fifty percent when you only put, you know, five percent down, and and you uh, have one percent closing costs.
0: Okay,
1: I got distracted. I don't know where it was, but the idea here is, you've got this good return that you're seeing, and it gets you there a lot faster. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, to be spacey, to be spacey. Okay, here we go. All right, so grow your assets' net worth. So. Even with negative cash flow, significant negative cash flow, really ugly cash flow, and even modest depreciation, that 3% per year, and the debt pay down from, in this case, putting 5% down the loan, debt pay down is pretty good, and the tax benefits of owning a rental property, that depreciation benefit, you might be able to get a significantly higher return than you could in something else. Whatever it is you decide you're looking at, stocks, bonds, crypto, NFTs, whatever you're doing. So you could use this return to grow your net worth, you know, buy rental properties over time, get this higher return, 25%. Then one of two options. This is just kind of like two things to think about. Number one, we talked about these earlier, sell some of the rentals to pay off the remaining ones with the net proceeds. The idea is you buy 10 rentals, or whatever number it makes sense for you. Then, over a period of time, when you get closer to the point where you need to convert that money in order to be much more cash flow heavy to be able to support yourself, and be financially independent, you sell off one, two, three, four, five, six, whatever number it is to pay off the other ones that you still have, and then you have really, really good cash flow, free and clear properties on those. You kind of go from afterburners with leverage to completely unleveraged owning those rental properties. Doing that. So, and by the way, I talk about net. When I, when I do my analysis, i about net proceeds. Don't think to yourself, oh, the property's worth 500. I owe 350. So I have $150,000 in equity. No, that is not how that math works. If you go sell a property for 500 and you owe 350, you're not walking away with $150,000. It's net, net after real estate commissions. If you're going to sell it with a real estate agent, if you're going to sell by owning, maybe they'll save some of that in exchange for doing your work. Your share of closing costs, not all closing costs are yours. Some of them are the buyers. You, it's negotiable who pays a lot of those. Um, your capital gains taxes. So, whatever the value of the property went up from where you bought it, you have capital gains taxes on those. And the, the government gives you this great benefit of depreciation, but there's this thing called depreciation recapture, which means the money that you got from depreciation. Now, the government says when you go and sell a property, you need to pay back a certain amount of that in a, in a tax called depreciation recapture tax. So a combination of all those expenses need to be taken out. So what you thought was $150,000 in equity might be, depending on what happened and everything else, $75,000 or $100,000 or whatever it is. So it could be a significant bite out of that. So I'm talking about taking all the properties you have, selling off some of them, paying all those fees I just talked about, or eliminating them or deferring them. You could defer some of them with 1031 exchanges and stuff, although you wouldn't be able to pay off the properties with a 1031 exchange. I digress. We'll talk about that another day. But you could take all that proceeds, pay off the other properties, and then have some free clear properties to do that. Okay, So you use these higher returns you're getting on this leveraged rental properties, and then you use that in order to pay off some of the other ones. Or option number two, you take all the rental properties you acquired. They were kind of rocket boostering their way up. They've now grown in value. And instead of taking some of them, selling them, and paying off the other ones, you sell off all of them, and then decide to simplify your life because owning rental properties is a little bit more complicated. Even if you have a property manager doing it, you need to manage the property manager. So now you take all the proceeds though, and you say, I'm done with all these rentals. They served me well while I had them. They did their job. Now I'm going to go invest in annuities or bonds or stocks or crypto or NFTs or whatever you're going to do, right? So you have this idea to do that, okay? So you solve those, and then you take that and you put it into whatever it is that you're investing in, and you use a safe withdrawal rate on that money to do that. Or you go buy annuities and you use the annuity kind of return to do that. Okay. So that is one way to think about the return you're getting on there. So the question is, should you invest in real estate or stocks? And what I did, it's got to give you some background here. I went and I modeled this question. Should you invest in real estate? Should you invest in stocks in over 300 US cities? With their current real estate prices and their current rents and the current mortgage interest rates. And I adjusted for a little bit of standard of living. So I said, you know, if you're in a really inexpensive market, you're probably living on this number, you know, because that's what you basically need in order to afford properties in that market. But then I also said, in order to be considered financially independent, you need to replace that number in passive income. Um, and other things in order to be able to get to that number. So if you're in a market where I was like, hey, look, you need $5,000 in order to be able to do this, $5,000 per month, in order to be able to buy properties in that market, I also said that your passive income needs to equal $5,000 a month. If you're in a market that requires $10,000 a month in order to be able to buy properties there, then you need to replace $10,000 a month with passive income. So the, the bar to be financially independent in more expensive markets is also higher. I kind of like made it that way. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three different strategies. What if you did this nomad strategy where you went and you bought properties as an owner occupant, put 5% down. You have private mortgage insurance when you do that in almost all cases. There's some exceptions like VA loans, but VA loans got their own funding fee, which is essentially private mortgage insurance paid as one fee in in advance. I digress. (laughs) So, you basically have this whole thing where you do a nomad, you're buying a property as an owner occupant, you got to live there for at least a year. It's a requirement of a the lender. Then, once you're done living there for a year, you can convert it to a rental. Sometimes it's more than a year in order to be able to have enough saved up to buy the next property. But you do that and you buy rental property after rental property after rental property until you get up to 10. I maxed you out of 10. And then, once your positive cash flow and any money you have invested in that kind of triggers to be financially independent, that's when you do it. So, you're buying property as a nomad, doing it that way. I also modeled you doing 20% down, you're like, look, James, I'm not messing around with moving into properties and living there for a year. It sounds horrible to move 10 times. Okay, no problem. I will show you the math for doing 20% down non-owner occupant. You don't have to move into the properties. Um, I think I assumed that you bought a property to live in first, and then you did 20% down. Maybe I didn't. I did both, but I don't know what I did in the presentation. Um, So I just assume you're buying 20% down non-owner occupant properties where you're not moving in, you're just buying rentals with 20% down. And then I also did the same thing We do 25% down. Okay. So what are the results? Well, let's look at Nomad first. When you do Nomad versus investing in only stocks, you don't buy any properties, you rent yourself and you only buy stocks. Doing Nomad at a 305 markets Doing Nomad is better in 220 of the cities. Doing stocks is only better in 31 of the cities. And in 54 cities, it didn't make any difference at all. They were basically the same. I'm
0: going to pause for dramatic effects, take a drink.
1: In other words, this question of, you know, should I do real estate? Should I, should I invest in stocks? If you do the Nomad strategy, put 5% down, move into the property, live there for a year, Convert that property to a rental and repeat the process. It is better to do that strategy than to just invest in stocks in 220 of the 305 cities. In 31 cities, it is better to have done stocks. Faster to be financially independent. This is speed to financial independence. And in 54 cities, it made no difference. And here is like each dot shows you like a different city. And the difference is how many months better was it? Not how many months it took, but how many months better was it? And the red dots are all the ones where it was better to do Nomad by that number of months. So, and I did it based on price of market. So I want to show you, look, at more expensive markets, is it always better to do Nomad or less expensive markets always better do Nomad? But so for example, like right here, this dot shows you that the properties in this particular market happen to be in the $130,000 range. And it is almost 400 months or almost 500 months better to do Nomad than to invest in stocks. With this green one, you know $150,000 market, it was probably about, I don't know, 180 months better for you to do stocks than it was to do Nomad. So a lot fewer green dots, where it's better to do stocks, a lot more red dots. And I want to point out that sometimes it's significantly better, not just like a year better, but sometimes significantly better in terms of months in order to do nomad than to do stocks. Kind of fascinating, right? All right. What about net worth? It's you have a higher net worth after forty years in two hundred and seventy-five cities doing nomad than doing stocks. You have a higher net worth doing stocks in only thirty cities, and there was zero where you had no difference at all. Okay, so um, you know there's basically thirty cities where it would have been better for you to do stocks in terms of net worth not time to financial independence financial independence was one before and so this shows you the difference in net worth in this case the green one's nomad so the ones uh the higher you are away from zero the bigger the difference in net worth is difference in net worth and the red ones show you the ones where stocks and those are relatively small better so it's like yeah they're better at 40 years but not that much better like there's sometimes when nomad is a lot better and so you got to look at this okay is this helpful for anybody you guys want to let me know, that'd be great. Because I like this stuff and I'd like to do more classes on this content if you guys are interested. So let me know in the chat box, if you could, for those that are not sleeping. Okay. Yeah. See, people love it. That's awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. 20% down. So we did Nomad before. Now we're going to compare 20% down to investing in stocks. So if you're going to do 20% down, and this time you're not moving into properties, you're just buying non-owner occupant rental properties. You're like, forget this you know, dealio where you're moving into properties, James. You're crazy. And no, one, no one's going to move into properties. A lot of people do, but I digress. The, the saying of the day is I digress because it seems like I'm all over the place today. Okay, in that case, doing 20% down will get you to financial independence faster in 220 cities. It'll get you faster doing just stocks and not doing 20% down rentals in 28 cities. And in 57 cities, it doesn't matter. Okay. And here's how much better getting the financial payments. This is number of months better. All the red dots are, it's better to do 20% down. And it's by this number of months, the distance away from this zero line. So distance there. And this is the price point of the houses in that market. So on a 300,000 ish type property, it's like almost... 580 months better for you to do whatever this is, 20% down than to do stocks. And here's some green ones. I'll show you the ones where it's better to do stocks than it is to do 20% down rentals. So the overwhelming majority of the time it does this. And you know, and, and this sort of reminds me: you like you hear people speak with authority, different real estate forums online at real estate investor clubs, wherever you talk to real estate investors, you hear those speak with authority. You always need to do this. It's always better to do rental properties. It's always better to do stocks. It's always better to do whatever. It's much more nuanced than you think, right? I'm, I'm showing you that. I'm showing you the data. And, and could my assumptions be wrong? Absolutely. <laughs> no, no doubt. I am not fallible. I do my best to try to make sure my data is accurate. And you can drill down and look at any city, right? Like I, I've had, to, in order to be able to show you this chart, I had to do the analysis for 305 cities, Now this is just me aggregating all the individual analysis and showing you what's going on. So this just goes to show you that you you need to do your homework. And if you're in one of these cities, then maybe real estate isn't as good as investing in stocks, right? If you're in any of these cities though, it turns out it's better. And maybe the assumptions, no, is it possible? This is like where I just throw everybody under the bus. Is it possible we all buy a whole bunch of real estate and 10 years from now, We have something worse than we saw in 2008, and the real estate market goes to zero. Possible? Maybe. Maybe. I I don't know, right? But who can predict the future? Is it possible that stock market returns from here on out are zero? Maybe. Is it possible stock market returns from here on out are 30% a year, in which case it probably crushes real estate? Is that possible? Sure. I mean, we don't know. We don't know the future. No one can predict that. But I'm showing you like based on some very reasonable assumptions. So I show you all my assumptions. You can go look at it. Go dig into the city and look. Anyway, I digress. That is the saying of the day. So a lot faster for doing 20% down in a lot of cities, a little slower in others. Higher net worth. You, are, you have a higher net worth putting 20% down in 275 cities. You have a higher net worth putting Investing only in stocks in 30 cities. Higher than investing 20%. Okay, so 275 to 30. And then here's the net worth difference. Again, there's a lot, sometimes with a very significant big difference, a lot of them with little difference, but sometimes it's a really significant difference if you invest in 20% down rentals versus doing that. And one other thing I'll add, when we talked about Nomad, you had to do it in your local marketplace, right? Because you're moving into the properties, you're owner occupying. So if you happen to be in... I don't know, pick any really expensive California city. <laughs> you know, you have to do it in that marketplace because you're moving in. When you do this 20% down plan and you happen to be in a market where buying properties even with 20% down has really ugly cash flow, you can choose to pick another market. You can go pick a market that has historically better cash flow because you're not living in the properties. So you could be living in Los Angeles and decide I'm going to invest in Atlanta, right? As just an example. And I didn't model that, right? I modeled it forcing you to invest in your local market with those properties. So you maybe even these red ones, you could say, you know, I happen to live in Los Angeles. Real estate historically has not cash flowed very well here. Maybe the overall return is better, but you know it has a cash flow here. Why don't I go pick a market that is better historically? And who knows what'll happen in the future? So you could do that. So there's even more to this. There's even more nuance, flavor to this, okay? All right, 25% down. We've kind of you, you, built up. You know what I'm talking about now. 25% now versus stocks. Uh, 25% down is better in 228 cities. Um, investing in stocks would have been better in 26 cities. and In the 51 cities, it didn't matter. And this is time to financial independence. So it would have been faster to be financially independent if you put 25% down, bought non-owner-occupant rentals in 228 cities. It would have been faster for you to be financially independent if you invested in stocks in 26 cities. and 51, it didn't matter. And then here's that distance, you know, basically how how much longer the difference between one and the other. And all the red ones are the 25% down, the green ones are you investing in stocks, and you can kind of look at this. And then higher net worth, you have a higher net worth investing in 25% down rentals in 277 cities. If you only invest in stocks, it was better in 28 cities and zero with no difference. And then here's the difference in net worth. So sometimes it's really significant difference in net worth. Sometimes it's much, much lower. Okay, last few slides. This is sort of the bonus
0: content. Bonus content. All right, Claudia said, happy to see you again. Very good information. Awesome, thank you. Good to see you. All right, cool, buy rentals for cash.
1: So I already showed you real estate is generally, this is exceptions, but generally faster, better net worth than stocks. A generally faster and also better net worth because we look at both those speeds of financial independence and also size of net worth, right? Then stocks. But here's the issue, right? As stated at the beginning of this webinar, prices are way up. Interest rates are way up. Rents are, rents are lagging. So one way to deal with high interest rates is to opt out. And by opt out, I mean, don't use mortgages. You got really, really high, ugly mortgages, interest rates. You could say, you know something? I'm going to (laughs) pass. I'm just just not going to do mortgages. So what that would be is buying properties free and clear. Some people, and I put this in italics, believe that you need, need, need to be leveraged with mortgages. Like it's silly to invest in real estate without mortgages to get the benefits of rental properties. And you know, your returns... Depreciation, debt pay down, which debt pay down would be zero if you didn't have mortgage on it. Depreciation, those returns get amplified, as does cash flow in whichever direction you're doing, either amplified negative or amplified positive as for as terms of percentage. But they get amplified when you're leveraged. And so you could see their case. You know, i I'd, I'd rather earn whatever it is, 30, 40% of my money. But sometimes real estate is just a better return, even unleveraged. You know, you get depreciation, you get unleveraged cash flow, and you get appreciation unleveraged, and the combination of what your cap rate is, which is basically your cash flow if you own a free and clear property, what your cap rate is plus your appreciation plus that tax benefit, is better than what you get investing in stocks. And in those cases, maybe it still makes sense to invest in real estate. So I probably need to do an entire class on this, but just a little bonus for you. So this is sort of the framework for like which scenarios we need to run so we need to do a scenario where you do buy an owner occupant property to live in and one where you say i'm going to forego buying an owner occupant property to live in and i just rent myself so you've got two different groups and then in each one of those you need to decide how you're going to invest whether you're going to do the nomad strategy and keep buying owner occupant properties and converting them to rentals or if you're going to do which i guess doesn't apply if you're renting but that's the exception Uh, you're going to do nomad, you're going to do that. Or if you're going to buy an owner-occupant property or not buy an owner-occupant property and buy 20% down rentals for the rest of the time, or 25% down rentals for the rest of the time, or pay all cash and not get any mortgages at all, and just buy investment properties without mortgages at all. Okay, So those are sort of like the options, right? You either buy an owner-occupant or you rent. And then whether you're going to do nomad, or 20% down to acquire the rentals, or 25% down, or you're going to pay all cash. So that's sort of the framework. I'm not covering all of these in this class, okay? I did, like, uh, I think a couple slides. Oops. Okay. So what I'm going to talk about now is I'm just going to do, a, this is much less detail than I did in the previous ones, and I, I probably need to do, like, full classes on this. So here it is, though. Nomad versus owner-occupant, so buy an owner-occupant property, then do nine all-cash rentals. So we're either going to buy an owner-occupant property, live there for a year, convert it to a rental, repeat that process until we get up to 10 rentals, or completely alternative, we're going to say, we're going to buy an owner-occupant property 5% down. Then we're going to save up our money until we have enough to buy a property free and clear without a mortgage at all. And once we get that property, then we're going to save up and buy another property. But the property we bought has really good cash flow because we don't have a mortgage on, okay? So in the baseline nomad model, where we just did nomad, 70 of them and 70 of the cities never quite achieved financial independence. They may have been really close. They may have been at like 90% of the way there to do it, but they never achieved financial independence in 60 years. So I set the timer. I said, look, we're gonna model this for 60 years in the future. So it's possible 61 years they actually achieve financial independence. I didn't go out past 60, so I don't know. Uh, but at, at the point where that happened, 70 of these cities did not quite achieve financial independence. They may have been really close. They may have been really far away, but we have to go look at that individually to see that. But in that case, 70 of them did it. However, if you did that, you buy an owner-occupant property, then you go and save up and buy nine free and clear properties without mortgages at all. Only 39 of those never achieved financial independence. So it was more effective for you to do this, buy an owner-occupant property, then save up your money and buy a free and clear rental property in. 39, it was more effective to do that. Difference between 70 never achieving financial independence versus 39. So more of them achieve financial independence by doing that strategy, which I think blows people's minds. They're like, this is crazy. You're saying that more often you see people be financially independent by doing this free and clear model versus doing highly leveraged real estate. Yep, in that particular case, that's true. Okay, there were 39... We're both never achieved financial independence, regardless which which scenario they did. So basically, the 39 where you never achieve financial independence with this all-cash thing, I'm pretty sure those are the same 39 because they probably didn't achieve financial independence when you did Nomad either, okay? Okay, moving on. When you own or occupy, then you do nine all-cash rentals. On average, it achieves financial independence almost two years faster. What? Say that again, James. What'd you say? I just said that if you do the model where you buy an owner-occupant property and then you save up and you buy free and clear rentals, that on average, when the average of all 305 cities, on average, it's two years faster, 24 months faster for you to do that to be financially independent than to do the Nomad baseline. Two years faster to actually do free and clear? Yeah. Now there are some where free and clear is locked, or where the uh, Nomad's faster. And there's somewhere that free and clear is faster. But on average, it's two years faster. Craziness. On median, median's the middlemost number, it's 35 months faster, almost three years faster. That's the middlemost number. Now, there is a lot more to this story. I, I, there's no way I could do this justice in Justice One class. I'll do more classes on this in the future, provided you tell me you want them. If you, you say, James, this sucks. <laughs> uh i don't want to do any more of these but if you tell me look you know this is super interesting i do want more of this then let me know and i will i will plan on doing more classes i could do a deep dive just into this one scenario talk about the assumptions talk about kind of outliers how this works we can look at different cities okay so yeah yeah Nick, said, like, yeah please that's awesome all right so here's the chart for this one so um achieving financial independence it's faster to do the owner occupy than do nine all-cash rentals in 177 cities in 86 cities, it's still faster to do Nomad. In 42 cities, it doesn't matter. Interesting, interesting. All right, same idea, except now I'm looking at 20% down or 25% down versus doing one owner-occupant all cash for nine rentals. So in this one, I put 20% down um, doing that non-owner-occupant thing versus doing the owner-occupant then buying all cash. So, um Make sure you guys are clear on what I'm saying here. In one model, we are just buying 20% down rental properties. And we did one owner-occupant nomad to start with. So we bought a property owner-occupant. Then from then on, we put 20% down and bought rental properties. In this other one, we bought an owner-occupant property. And then we saved up money. and We bought properties all cash, free and clear. In 169 cities, it was better to do the all cash model. Versus in 93 cities, it was better to save 20% down to buy the rentals. And in 43 cities, it didn't matter. And this is in time to be financially independent. For the 25% down, with 25% down in 164 cities, it was better to do free and clear to pay all cash for properties. It was better to do 25% down in 96 cities. And it made no difference at all in 45 cities.
0: Craziness.
1: All right. Look at that. Just on time. Any final questions? Was that helpful for you guys? Did it sort of answer your question as, why might I still want to invest in real estate despite high prices, high interest rates, lagging rents? That was the intent. Kind of give you an expanded view of some more subtlety and nuance to this whole real estate investing question. Cash flow is not everything. And it's not the only approach. You know, leverage property cash flow. Is that helpful? Any final questions
0: before I let you guys go? No questions. Oh, wait, one oh, question. Awesome,
1: awesome. You're very, very welcome. Yes, excellent content. You're very welcome, Nick. All right, guys, that's all I got for you. Have a great day. Um, I am doing a class tomorrow, so if you want to log in for that. On uh, cap rates. So, anyway, I will talk to you all soon. Bye bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Windsor is harder than ever. Book a call with the real estate financial planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes.